This week on Restore It All, we're talking to a CTO of an MSP that manages both public and private cloud environments. And he's got some great insights on what belongs in each place. As usual, if you want to skip the banter, just go to about three minutes in. Hope you enjoy the episode. You could restore Hi, and welcome to Backup Central's Restore It All podcast. I'm your host, W. Curtis Preston, a.k.a. Mr. Backup, and I have with me my uh, DIY flooring encourager, Persona Maliandi. How's it going, Persona? I'm good, Curtis. I'm good. Uh, how goes the floors? It, it, it goes well. As you've seen, you know, I've been sending you the photos that, you know, there was a there was a pause there for a while while my knee injured injury uh i don't know well I, well i think it was a knee injury but i think it was also like you were you went to hawaii right you had well, there was things. that too yeah it's so hard it to do hard to do yeah. flooring while you're on vacation yeah <laughs> bluetooth uh, flooring it has resumed in earnest and I, I actually what's once i'm done with the current room which is the super hard room where i have to work backwards i don't know if any of you have ever done you know paneling or the luxury vinyl planking or the laminate flooring there's a working forwards there's a working backwards i am now currently working backwards as i have to in one of the rooms it's the hardest it's the worst <laughs> i'm doing that once i'm done with that i will be half done with the project so i'm super super excited to get to that uh and you're the only one who i can send photos and you're like good job and you're the only well, one that like encourages me in my little DIY. <laughs> well, I got to try, you know. Well, here's the thing. I live vicariously through your projects. So it feels <laughs> like I'm working on it when you're right. working on it. I wonder how many of our podcast listeners also live vicariously through my projects <laughs> or are going, gosh, shut up about the flooring and get to the tech already. <laughs> I just wonder you so know, if you, how if many you, there yeah, are out there. If you have a viewpoint on this, please let Curtis know on Twitter. Yes, at WC Preston on Twitter. Uh, you know, we love to hear opinions, you know, and just remember opinions are like, you know, noses. Everybody has one. And I usually pick my own. Um, all right. So we're going to bring on our guest today. He is the CTO of Opti9 Tech, having been there since the late 90s. He can be found on Twitter, Sagi Brody. And LinkedIn has the same name. It's uh, having a unique name. You get to go right. I, if you search on my name on LinkedIn, you get like. I think I think I'm the people. only Maliandi, by the way. Yeah, you're, you're definitely. Yeah, you as well. So welcome, <laughs> welcome to the podcast, Siki Brody. Thank you. It's it's great to be here. I could already tell this is going to be a fun conversation. <laughs> well, it it'll be something. It'll be it'll be lively for sure. Uh, the two of us talk way too much, and we we invite you to the conversation. <laughs> Do you do any home DIY projects by chance? I just finished um, having a home built uh, from oh. scratch. Not myself, a contractor, but um, <laughs> I can jelly. tell you, I, I wouldn't do it again. Um, <laughs> and, you know, uh, I hear that from almost everybody that actually has a home built for them. Um, yeah. Is it? It's a pretty stressful project. But uh, there, there's basically two groups of people, though, in this world. There, there, there's people like me who like to do a lot of DIY stuff. And I, I like to do it partially because I like the process. And I like to do it because I, I, I get more 
I can get more stuff done than what I could pay for if I had to pay somebody else to do it. And, but, a, but a friend of mine, uh, he learned from his dad, the following phrase, do what you do well, so you can pay other people to do what they do well. And he does zero <laughs> DIY. Uh, and I can respect that as well. It's all good, you know, but, uh, anyway, so l- let's start with a, a, a summary of what, you know, when I see your company, I see you talk a lot about hybrid computing. Uh, what sort of, you know, give us an overview of the company to start with. Sure. Um, well, Optinine is a, a managed cloud provider. Um, two very vague terms, managed <laughs> and cloud. Um, I can talk all day about that. But yeah, so w- what we're doing is, you know, we, we're managing production workloads for our customers, either in public clouds like AWS uh, or in private environments like uh, virtual private clouds or hosted private clouds, which we host in our data centers, which we have uh, around the world. And um, so there's sort of like the line of business of, of taking ownership and accountability for customers' production environments. And then we have a, a the BCDR side of the house where we're providing managed offsite backups and managed disaster recovery. Um, and I would say sort of what's, what's interesting or, or what we find to be important is not not so much the what, which is kind of what I just described, but more of like the how. How do we how do we integrate those things within your existing framework of your network or security? How do we, you know, give you the best of both worlds so that you can consume these services in, in a in a way that looks and feels and acts like it's part of your environment, but it's as a service. So, it, it's definitely a bespoke sort of model, um, and we we get deep, and you know, a lot of people, a lot of organizations have a technical debt and skeletons in their closets and weird platforms. And, you know, like sort of like the higher up the enterprise stack you go, the more edge cases you encounter, the less vendors that are out there that have an appetite to service those. And for whatever reason, that's where we sit and we like it. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because when you're talking initially about, oh, yeah, we do hybrid cloud, I was like, why would someone choose like Opti9 tech, right, versus... Um, go with like an AWS or some or like any of the other public cloud companies, but like you're just talking about, right. It's all those skeletons in the closets, the unique situations that you have the ability to sort of customize and support for versus like some of the public clouds, which is like, Hey, just onboard, whatever you have. If it fits into what we have, great. If not, sorry. <laughs> yeah. It, it, I, I would, I would guess it, what it sounds like is, you know, comparing, you to an AWS, you, it is that M it's the M right. You know, not, not everybody wants to actually manage a cloud environment, right. They'll, they'll, they'll hand it over to you, but, uh, but they don't, they don't necessarily want to manage. It sounds like you manage both the the cloud side as well as the on-prem side. And that's, that would be. Well, so we're not actually, we're not actually managing anything, managing anything at our customer's premises in their, in their office. Um, But within our, our facilities, um, which are all over the world, you know, we'll stand up a, you know, more called a legacy environment, like a private VMware cluster and, you know, which, which is analogous to what they have on-prem, which we can easily lift and shift. Um, But I I think the overall, our, our tagline is right cloud, right workload, right time. And, the idea is that um, we want to have the workload's best interest at heart. And, you know, years ago, you would hear people, you know, saying, I'm going all in. We're going all in with AWS. We're going all in with Azure. We've picked our cloud, you know, strategy and it, it's all GCP. And now 
I think the whole market has woken up to hybrid. And it's very safe to say hybrid because what you're saying is, I'm not ready to make a commitment. I might need this tomorrow. I might need that tomorrow. And that's what hybrid is. It's it's mixing them. And so what we're trying to do is to, to be, you know, sort of like fiduciary to the workloads and really build a, a reference architecture from a networking perspective um, for, for, for the hybrid. So if we are doing an audit on our customer's environment and, you know, we, they have some legacy perpetual workloads that are going to cost a lot less in a private cloud and be more performant, um, we'll put it there. If they're looking to build, a, you know, retool an, an old iSeries retail application and, and have it be cloud native, we'll put it on AWS. We'll actually help with the modernization of the app too. So it's hybrid from a platform perspective, but also from migration strategies too. But I would say most importantly, you know, people are already hybrid. They have stuff in organizations, but kind of, you know, who owns the glue between those platforms and who's sort of, you know, figuring out the integration strategies. And so oftentimes we'll do that, you know, for, for mid-market companies. We'll, we'll, we'll manage in both environments and we'll do the network integration back to wherever they needed to go. So if I'm, so, you know, I'm a customer thinking about using you. So it sounds like I have to move if if I'm if I'm fully on prem at this point, right? I have to move my workloads, or you help me move my workloads to either a cloud provider that you support, or to your uh, private cloud that's in your colo facilities. Is that is that a correct summary statement? If I want you to manage it on the production side, but every almost everything that we do from a you know an, an offsite backup and disaster recovery perspective is is you know sort of responsive to existing environments. So. Uh, we have tons of customers that are just using us to manage their local backups um, okay. and their backups to the cloud. And when it comes to disaster recovery, and to kind of answer your question, why would somebody use us? Um, you know, the, again, there's no right or wrong. I mean, go using AWS without a managed provider, that's fine. Um, using a, a data protection software and building your own target environment and building your own DR <laughs> strategy, that's fine too. What we really ask people is like, and it's kind of like actually kind of like the quote that you said from from your dad before. What is you know what, what do you have an appetite to be accountable for and responsible for? Do you want to be in the business of managing your DR runbooks in perpetuity and nudging to be tested? And who who should own failover? Who should own failback? Who should own the consumption strategy, which is more important than just moving bits and bytes? So that's where we that's where you know it's all white glove. We're getting deep. We want to see those network diagrams. We, we want to, you know, make suggestions that are are usable and don't require them to re-IP their entire network, you know. So it's all about that, you know, it's a we fit for those organizations that are looking to shift ownership and just hold someone accountable to an SLA. Interesting. Uh, and by the way, uh, before we continue, I'll throw out our usual disclaimer. Uh, I work for Druva, Persona works for Zoom. And this is not a podcast of either company and the opinions that you hear are ours. Uh, if you'd like to join the conversation, I am available at WC Preston on Twitter, or uh, you can reach me at WCurtisPreston at Gmail. And um, then uh, also be sure to rate us. Um, I think by the time, I think by the time this goes live, our current comment special will probably be over, but yeah. you know, we'll see, we'll see if we extend it. Uh, the idea was to get, uh, I think it was like eight new comments by the end of October. 
and I would continue to grow my beard and look look more like Santa Claus. By Christmas. come on, people, we'll you want to see Curtis in a beard in a Santa I'm, Claus beard? I'm I'm, I'm um I've been, I've been letting it grow. I, I uh, Sagi, I've been I've been trimming it pretty tightly, uh, <laughs> kind of like yours. And then I've been letting it grow because persona over here has a is it a is it a three year yet? Not a three year beard yet. So it's a two and a half year beard. So he didn't. Cut, he basically cut hasn't cut his hair or his beard since um, COVID, and um, I don't know. It's some sort of weird protest or something. But anyway, if you want to see me grow my beard longer for Christmas and throw out a few more comments, we love to see comments uh, on uh, iTunes. There. Um, so the I, I am curious. So, so now, so the reason. All right. So. I get that basically you, you manage on-prem backup environments, but if I'm going to move my production workloads to you, how is, I guess one thing, and, and let's just assume for the moment that I'm not going to, I'm not going to retool. I'm not going to refactor. I'm just going to run. I'm going to take my, my, my on-prem stuff and I'm going to run it in your cloud or their cloud. Is there a cost advantage of one versus the other? Is yours less expensive than, putting it, uh, you know, in AWS or VMware cloud on AWS? Um, well, <laughs> almost everything is less expensive than VMware cloud on AWS. <laughs> um, no, we're not. So, yeah, it's not about vendors, but I think I yeah. can safely say that as an independent um, participant. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't excel in, <laughs> in um, cost effectiveness is what you're saying. I, I think, though, that um, VMware cloud on AWS the fact that it's been successful is really a good story for folks like Optinine and others. There's a lot of companies that are running, you know, private cloud as a service. And um, the reason that I think it's successful is, you know, and I'm sure you guys understand this, people are looking to shut down data centers. So there's a lot of pressure on them to just sort of turn it off and they had to move their stuff. And, you know, EC2 um, on AWS is, you know, you can run VMs, but it's not, the, the, the same as running VMware, right. um, you know, it's designed to run, you know, sort of swarms of instances. There's no inherent per node redundancy. And it, it was designed for a different use case. Yeah. Um, and, right. they, and then you have the whole sort of just operational overhead. These people are very, very familiar with the VMware interface. And, and you know, that's, that's what I've heard a lot about. It's like once you have like a VMware admin trying to go beyond VMware, they're like, no, 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 no. Kicking and screaming. <laughs> yeah. And so now you have, you know, basically move us to AWS because, you know, you can't go wrong picking AWS. But, um, you know, so the, the right thing to do is if you want to bring it to EC2 and to AWS in general is let's 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 retool it to be cloud native. Let's take advantage of PaaS um, and SQL as a service and function as a service. But, you know, how long is it going to take to rewrite all these applications? And do we even want to rewrite all of them? So, so VMC was this really good middle ground where it's like, hey, everything stays the same from a from a technology perspective and interface and operations and management, and you get to shut down your data center, um, and that's great. I think what's different about companies like like Optinine and, and all the other iterations that are out there is um, VMC with VMC that they, they have to kind of they have to kind of, it's like the Borg, they have to assimilate everything into the AWS model. And, you know, that's a scale company. So um, you can't run a lot, like for instance, you can't run a lot of the data protection tools um, that run on VMware, they won't run on VMC. 
um, because you don't get sort of native root access to ESXi. Um, and also, if you try to put it inside your network, like one, one of the things that I like doing is, you know, integrating our cloud services into a customer's existing MPLS or SD-WAN network from the closest location, from the same metro, so it looks and feels and acts like it's in just another node. You, it's hard to do that with VMC, and it's a lot of steps to go through. So I use VMC as an example, you know, that there is a model for these regional service providers. And if you can do all the things that they do, they can do, but you have this level of flexibility and customization, and, oh, you got to put a half rack worth of networking gear in front of it, no problem. Oh, you have an MSSP that needs to monitor every packet, no problem. It's kind of like that, you know. Um, a bespoke model a little. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but but to answer your question on cost, um, the least expensive solution is the one that is it is best sort of tuned for the use case. So I do think running a a SaaS platform, a modern day SaaS platform on a private cloud is probably it's 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 not going to be very cost effective at scale when you start talking about traffic and also to run perpetual VMs like legacy ERP systems and so on in EC2. It's it's overkill. And I'd say one of the things that people forget when they move to the cloud is they've all been sold on virtualization on prem years and years ago. And one of the reasons was um, based on oversubscription. Hey, you can provision 16 gigs of memory on all your VMs and only use four or five or whatever. When you move to public cloud, to EC2, to Azure, you're going backwards. You're paying for provisioned again, um, whether you use it or not. And Hey, that's okay if you're using Ansible or Puppet or Cloud Formations to automatically deploy and resize VMs. Who cares? But if you're moving a perpetual VM, like you want that oversubscription benefit. So the private cloud retains that part of it for you, which is really interesting. And I, I believe though, with the VMC though, it would still hold that same ability to overprovision, right? Just within, because within, within the VMC world, right? Yeah, within the VMC yeah. world. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's a really big factor that I, I think, regardless of where you go, what you do, people, it just kind of like just forget about that aspect. Which is a big thing. I think a lot of people don't realize, like the entire reason they went virtualized was to <laughs> deal with the, yeah, I don't know the exact size and how can I over provision and not waste a bunch of resources. And interesting. Yeah, well, I've never I thought about the fact of, yeah, moving to EC2, you're losing those benefits. <laughs> yeah. And now instead of Instead of sharing something that you own, you're now renting something that you don't own <laughs> and you're paying, you're paying for the whole thing, right? I, I would argue that the better utilization of resources was the OG reason for virtualization. But to me, and again, maybe it's because I see things the way I do, to me, backup in DR is like, if you do it right, uh, and and things like HA and all of that stuff that you can do with virtualization, like you can't do vMotion, you know, with with a with a physical box, <laughs> right? It just it just well, you can. It just doesn't do anything, right? Yeah. But um, it, things like that that just simple. The idea of it's just there are just so many things that we can do from a backup and DR perspective now that just simply weren't possible in the old days. Now there was that period and you know it sounds like Sigi you've been in this long enough that you remember that period when when VMware came out and backup just broke like <laughs> like overnight because everybody just kept running their same old same old 
Um, you know, and that's what created essentially the market for Veeam in the first place was all the traditional backup products were just broke. Um, and, and eventually we got there, right? Yeah. I mean, our, our backup software, you know, was rsync. That's, uh, what we ran, you know, very long time ago. And then VMware, there was nothing. We, there, we, there was a script called uh, ghetto VCP, which is what everybody ran, you know, and, uh, yeah. it was called ghetto BCP for a reason, you know, um, <laughs> But, but, I, but I agree with you. I think once you get things, once you get sort of sort of these um, objects, servers, connections, whatever, into a, like a, a virtual construct, yeah, you can manipulate them in so many interesting ways. Um, I mean, listen, we still do DR today for physical servers and I-series and P-series and NFS and all the skeletons. Do we like doing it? No, it's not as easy as, as doing VMs. Um, and the RPOs and RTOs are not the same, but... You know, when when things are image based, there are so many cool things you can do with it. I'll, I'll give you my favorite example is um, when people think about DR from, a, you know, and I'm not like an old school networking guy. So from a from a connectivity perspective, um, whereas the virtualization might be replicated, you know, using images in these cool ways, connectivity is still often thought of in the old school way, where if I have, you know, three private connections at my production, one's going to Fiserv and One's going to McKenzie and one's going to Bloomberg or whatever, and my MPLS. I I still need to duplicate all of those at the DR site, and then I have to pay for double the circuits, and I have to have double the overhead. And by the way, no one is monitoring those circuits until I actually have to use them, and then we find out they've been down for six months and blah blah blah. So one of the really cool things that we've been we've been using, um, and it's not something that we even sell, but if you look at these network as a service platforms, um, the likes of Packet Fabric or Megaport or even Equinix uh, ECX, you know, if, if if you take that cross connect, that transport circuit, and you and you plug it into their fabric instead, you can fail over and fail back the physical connectivity from production to DR just like you do your VMs, right? And and to me, that's that's the coolest thing, right? Because now I'm saving money. And now I'm using that always during production too. So if it breaks, I know immediately. And I think it's tangible, you know, Um, and it reduces the complexity greatly. So this whole software defined, you know, buzzword for me as being someone who has to design DR infrastructure, um, I can use that and leverage it to simplify and, and, you know, reduce the RTO. That's very interesting. I never thought like normally when I think about like, doing DR testing, right? It's like, hey, can I fail over? Can I bring it up? But the networking aspect you just talked about, right? It's like, you really have to validate that entire stack top to bottom, not only of does your VM come up, but does your app come up? Is your networking all good to go, right? Does all the connectivity services all come up as well that you need in order for it to be operational? Yeah, I mean, DR um, uh, networking is like the dirty little secret (laughs) of DR. You know, copying data is, is easy. I mean, you know, companies like Druva and Veeam and, and many others have done a really good job of, of data replication and data assurance. And, and, and you know, I mean, they're, they're just amazing at what they do. Um, but devil's in the details. And so the first question I usually ask is, how are you going to consume? You know, what does consumption look like? And mm. the answer kind of changes if we're talking about a full failover versus a partial failover and so on and so forth. Right. And then you, you add... You know, we 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 just recorded yesterday. We recorded a, an episode where we 
we were we've been doing a back to basic series and uh we recorded an episode yesterday that was just like why we back up and uh, you know all the things that can go wrong that back up is uh, back up in dr are meant to fix and we we talked about a true disaster right we were talking about things like hurricanes and giant floods that take out regions and one of the real challenges is okay how do you do connectivity to your apps when um, everybody is now working out of Starbucks and you're running out of a cloud provider in another region, right? Um, you know, th th there's all those things that you have to count on that that, that aren't necessarily available. Um, I, I wanted to go back to, there, there was a thought that, Prasanna, that you brought up earlier, I think it was you uh, that talked about, you know, the, the OG reason why we went with, with virtualization. When I think about the cloud, like 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 a true IaaS provider, um, to me that big reason, like it may not be, it, it definitely is not the reason most people go to the cloud today. I, I think they they go to the cloud for false reasons. But the true beauty of of an IaaS vendor is that dynamic allocation of resources. I need a VM, boom. I need a I need a pass platform, boom. I don't need it anymore. Boom. <laughs> right. That, that, uh, that, that automatic, you know, allocation and deallocation of resources and paying for them only when you use them. That that's the thing going back to when we talked about virtualization, the stuff that is possible now that wasn't possible then that's the thing that is possible only in a public or, you know, cloud environment, or I guess private cloud environment like yours as well where you can just grab a bunch of stuff, use it, and then get rid of it and pay for it for the three hours that you had it. That to me is the beauty of the public cloud. And if you're not leveraging that, you're not really, you're not really getting the, the beauty of the public cloud. I don't know. What, what do you think about that? Yeah, no, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Because, and, and I, I, I talk, I talk about that sometimes with people and I tell them when you're paying for EC2 instances, you know, you're paying for the APIs, you're paying for the pleasure of being able to do all that. And if you're, and if you're not actually using it, if your goal is to deploy to 20 Windows VMs with 16 gigs of memory and maintain that in perpetuity, um, you're overpaying, you know? Yeah. So, so it, it is true. And I think people that are using... You, know, you, you need to be using X number of past features, you know, to really sell me on the fact that you need to be in public cloud. And, you know, I would say in general today with all of this, the, the real threat is complexity. That's the killer. And everybody in IT, their part of their goal should be on sort of watching complexity sprawl and reigning in complexity. Um, because, you know, as you're aware, you know, the more complex, the harder it is to manage, the harder it is to ensure it falls into your resilience, you know, goals, um, or your compliance goals or your security goals, right? <laughs> yeah. One of, one of my mantras is complexity equals risk. So yeah. 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 And, and even like people that are like, you know, you have, you know, departments going and, and just running, um, just using SaaS platforms. I mean, it's great from a functionality, uh, perspective, but, you know, how does that how how does that relate to those different things? How does it re relate to resilience? And going back to um, what you were saying before about sort of DR testing, right? One of the interesting scenarios that's popped up with this and DR is, 
you know, if you're if part of your production environment is, you know, Office 365 and um, Salesforce and Workday and like you have, you know, critical data that's sitting there um, and your your own applications are speaking to them and integrated via APIs. Can you actually do a DR test on your application? Like when you bring up your app in DR, if you haven't blocked off your firewall, right, and you start going in the app and making changes and playing with it. And meanwhile, it's it's connecting to your QuickBooks instance or your Salesforce and you're changing production data. Like this whole thing around you, you can actually poison your production environment by doing DR testing. So, you know, we talk to our customers about that and, you know, how do you account for that? And um, it's not so easy sometimes. Of the major platforms, you know, the say three or four top platforms like that, the one that I think gets that right is Salesforce, yeah. right? Because they'll give you that sandbox, sandbox environment. There's not, I'm not aware. I don't think there's a sandbox Microsoft 365. Maybe you clone your SharePoint site. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, the sandbox is nice, but now you have to, you know, um, and we've probably thought about this way too much, but now you have to, um, where am I doing, where am I doing the, the split to the sandbox? Is it in my application? And now I have to go tell all my devs to run two configs and I hit a button in the app. Am I doing it at the network layer where I'm proxying the connections and I'm redirecting it to the sandbox? And, you know, going back to what you said, it's all, it's all either way, it's all complexity. And I don't think it's a problem, but I think these are some of the things that people need to think about at the very beginning before they go and run and jump on this SaaS or that SaaS or this or that. You really have to kind of look at the big picture holistically. Yeah. If, if your DR test is going to be actually changing things in SaaS environments. Yeah. I hadn't even thought about that actually, but if it is, you absolutely can poison your, your production environment. I've seen um, it happen, happen with the hospital where they, they t- turned it on and they use a third party, you know, pharmaceutical service for prescriptions and they put in a test prescription and, you know, all of a sudden something pops out of the machine for, for John Doe. And <laughs> oh, that's, oh, no. that's not good. Yeah. I can think of all sorts of things where that happens. And yeah, my, my concern of the SAS, the modern day SAS world, as, as much as, you know, I, I work at a SAS provider, right? But my concern of the modern day SAS world is, well, two concerns. One is the one you talked about, about the complexity. You can have hundreds of SaaS providers that do various little things for you. And uh, I remember, uh, Persona, you remember when we interviewed that one person who worked at a, you know, a startup, we asked them how many SaaS providers they said, and they said 450, (laughs) right? Holy crap. Like, how do you, how do you, like you said, how do you rein that in? How do you manage um, you know, provisioning to that and, 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 uh, SSO to that and all that. I mean, I, I guess that's what Octus for, but n- number two, and re- really this is number one is, um, how many of those SAS apps have data that is critical to your production requirement that, you, that your production environment that you're creating in that SAS vendor. And then there is no backup of that data. Right. And the answer is all of it. Right. Ninety nine percent of SaaS customers don't do squat for backup of their SaaS environment. And they think that people like you and me that happen to sell services to do that, we're just being fear mongers when we tell them that Microsoft 365 might delete all their data one day. You know? Yeah, it's it's a very 
it, there's so many bad assumptions in, in, in the industry. I mean, not, it's, it's not the industry, it's, it's just the complexity, you know, like it's a, it's a good example. And, uh, you know, with Office 365, certainly they have multiple data centers and your data is resilient. If one of those data centers, you know, goes down or blows up, you know, you're fine. But, you know, can you, can you hit the rewind button and bring back your Office 365 in, you know, as it looked like two weeks ago, you know, like you can do in a, in a traditional environment. No, you can't do that. Absolutely not. And I think there's, there's so many gotchas in the market. I mean, one that, that we have been looking at recently, we actually launched a product called observer to kind of try to mitigate it. And it's kind of been my baby um, for the last few months is we realized that the backup and the backup and replication software running at the customer's production environments have now become this sort of new attack surface that attackers are going after. And it makes total sense. If you're, if your goal in life is to ransomware companies and get as much money as you can out of them, then of course, the first thing you do when you get in is you're going to go look for all those backups and those replicas and the DR site and try to destroy everything. It increases your likelihood of getting paid. And what we realized was that a lot of the, a lot of people, you know, mistakenly are using the same authentication for those tools locally. And if an attacker gets into them, um, they can destroy everything at the, you know, at, at the DR site in seconds, you know, there's no such thing as immutability when it comes to disaster recovery for almost all, all the tools I've seen. Um, and even with backups, there's immutability, but you know, they can also delete stuff beyond that. And they can also disable your jobs and wait out the immutability timers. So, and so what we did was we realized we're already connected into our customers on-prem software, like just to pull whatever data we need to manage it. And so what we started to do was we ran the, we were running the data through uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence, and we're looking for quote unquote suspicious activity that an attacker might perform. Um, things like uh, encryption being disabled um, on backups or retention being modified or uh, jobs being modified or all the backups being deleted, all these you know, different things. And we baseline what's normal for that site, and what's not normal. And then we set out threat alerts and we also you know, integrated with some security tools because they don't have access to this landscape. And then we also did this other cool thing where if and when this happens, we can automatically air gap the offsite disaster recovery and backups environment. So I'm really excited about that because within my organization, everyone's like, oh, we should do more for security. We should do more for security. And it's like, well, how do we like we're not a security company, but this is an area that we know a lot about. And if most people are coming to us to buy those services because they're concerned about security, hey, maybe we can you know, address it in a more direct way. It's another line of defense, if you will, right? That says, yeah, yeah, exactly. I want to, I want to ask you, Sugi. Um, you know, you're you're a Veeam MSP. We we've talked to Veeam a couple times on the podcast, and you know, I, I've often wondered what does a service provider look like for Veeam, and you're actually the first one mm. that 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 we've actually talked to. I'm I'm curious to know. You know, obviously, you know the value of security in a, in a data protection environment. What is your how? You know, you don't have to give away secret sauce, but but how do you think is the proper way to configure Veeam that's secure and and also if you're going to do DR right? Um, you know, if you're going to do DR as a service for somebody, how would you be configuring Veeam? Um, well, I mean, that's, that's, you know, part of our bread and butter. Absolutely. 
Um, you know, Veeam is the software and we're, we're wrapping our services around it, uh, you know, mo managing, monitoring, securing and scaling. Veeam is not the only data mover that we support. Um, we support um, Zerto and, and Itera and a few others. Again, it's all, you know, what's, what's the use case and what's the best tool in our, in our tool, yeah. tool bag for it. Um, but, you know, there, there's definitely some best practices technically around it. What I mentioned before, you know, around don't tie it into your production AD. I mean, that's probably the best thing <laughs> you can do, I would say. I mean, they support. Cut that right, man. Yeah, I mean, they support immutability now. They support hardened repos. Um, obviously, those are part of best practices. I would just say, like like I said before, just really acknowledge what business you want to be in. If, if, if you are a backups administrator and you want to take this challenge and own it, then great. I mean, there's tons of good resources out there. In fact, I've done webinars about, you know, with, with Veeam around what, what are the best practices, right? Um, we also are selling this observer tool as a standalone. You know, you can just you can just layer it on top of your Veeam infrastructure to, to alert mm -hmm. you of these suspicious actions. You don't necessarily have to use us for offsite backups or DR. And so that's a nice middle ground, right? Um, especially because we're doing a lot more with AWS. So, you know, we want to be able to provide these managed services without forcing our customers to use any specific target. Right. With, with Veeam, so, I, you know, I know they support immutability to like S3 object lock. If you're going to do DR, though, you, you want that to be on on block, right? If you're going to do DR from it? Yeah. So Veeam supports immutability with object. They also support immutability with their local backup servers. One of the great things and one of the horrible things about Veeam is that there's so many components. Um, if, you're a, if you're a big shop, it's good because you can scale those components individually. Um, if you just want the easy button, you can run it all on one server too. Um, but I think, I think understanding what bucket you fall, fall into and find, maybe finding the right information at the right time might not be the easiest thing when there's so many different variations. Um, but yeah, you can run immutability locally. Yes. When we, when we provide disaster recovery as a service and for anyone who's doing it on their own in house, you're replicating to production ready infrastructure. And so it's, it's typically an, an all flash or a hybrid array. Um, you know, the VMDK is essentially sitting there re registered, ready to be booted up and our customers, you know, there's no, there's no sort of, um, transformation of the data. It's, it's immediately available, but that's also what makes it susceptible to, to what I was saying before is if the tool is constantly replicating, um, and somebody gets into the tool. Um, and this is not just Veeam, it's, it's, it's the same with Commvault and Rubrik and, and Zerto. If someone gets in that tool, they can hit a button and say, hey, let's, let me delete all the data at the remote rep replica, like instantly. Yeah, it's a concern that I have. I'm sure you're aware of the, the news where we've seen the ransomware folks directly attacking different uh, backup vendors. I, I guess I'm wondering if there's any way to, to get around that. Well, I think I think using a service provider like like us is good because now you have you have the separation of data data plane and control plane. Um, you have this firewall, you know, in a way between the customer's infrastructure that's tied to their authentication and the recovery environment. You also, you know, like as you're saying before, the the beauty of the cloud is you know all the spin up and spin down. If we're doing disaster recovery as a service we're not talking to customers about how many, how much CPU memory they need. We basically give them an SLA that their applications will perform just as good or better 
and production. There's no mm -hmm. costs for the CPU memory. We manage all that on the back end. And um, you know, we're, we're managing the replication, we're monitoring it, we're owning the failover, failback, testing, all that stuff. So it makes it very simple for them. And as you know, there's you know a gazillion other things that all these IT folks need to manage these days, especially with security, so they can kind of move on. But I do really think that when people think about security, they're missing the whole DR component. Um, we, they, people also need a, an isolated recovery environment to, to you know, if, if, like if you look at the Colonial Pipeline hack, um, it's 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 not that they were down so long because they didn't have backups. You know, they, they had a full copy of all their data. The question though is, where do they bring that backup from? Um, and you're not gonna, you don't wanna override your production environment. You need to do forensics and see how they got in and what happened. Um, and so a, a true disaster recovery environment, one where you can kind of boot up multiple snapshots, gives you the ability to have an isolated recovery environment to bring up the app in a way that it's not gonna infect back to production. And also to bring up a recent copy to, to perform forensics. Yeah. So, and, right. and a lot of people kind of throw backups and DR in the same bucket, it's the same thing. And to your point, no, two separate services, two separate use cases, two separate goals. When we sell backups, it's landing on cheap and deep storage. When we, when we provide disaster recovery, it's it's expensive performance storage ready to go. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, I, I remember just going back and thinking, Curtis, to the talk with Tony Mendoza about SpectraLogic and sort of the pain they went through to recover from ransomware and how just like identifying the systems that they can boot from and trying to find like what is a known good copy they can roll back to, right? Took them days yeah. in order to just well, I, figure that out. Yeah, their biggest challenge was just figuring out what was infected, right? what servers were infected. So they did this like what one, I think that's what he said, right? Where it would, they shut everything down and then they brought everything up like one server at a time to see if it was infected before they, before they moved on. Yeah, and that's a really good point. That's half the battle, right? So, and that's part of another reason we, we kind of when we built Observer, we kind of built it to to give you that some of that information and, and all that. But that's it's a challenge. These are the things that people never think about until, unfortunately, something bad happens. That's why we have people like you and Prasanna and me, Sugi, because we just we just try to get them to think about that sort of stuff. That is the whole purpose. Of this podcast. Well, I think it's been a great, great discussion. Uh, thanks for thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. And uh, Persona, you know, as always. And I'll continue to keep you updated on my floor progress. Good. I want to see finished pictures soon. Tomorrow. Tomorrow. <laughs> I'll see what I can do. I'll see what I can do. All right. And uh, thanks again to the listeners. Remember to subscribe so that you can restore it all. Good.